0: New Orleans had a deeply rooted history of religiously operated orphanages. In fact, it claimed the very first orphanage in the nation back in 1726, wow. founded by Ursuline nuns. And so by the 1850s, when yellow fever struck and there was a critical mass of Jews in New Orleans, and unfortunately a critical mass of orphans, It was a coming of age for the Jews of New Orleans to be able to establish from the ground up what became the first purpose-built Jewish orphanage in the country.
1: Welcome to St. Louis in Tune. And thank you for joining us for Fresh Perspectives on Issues and Events with experts, community leaders, and everyday people who are driving change and making an impact that shapes our society and world. The show is co-hosted by Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston. Marlene Trussman grew up in New Orleans as a client of the Jewish Children's Regional Service, which was the successor to the Jewish Orphans Home of New Orleans and was founded in 1855 until it closed in 1946. She is a graduate of Isidore Newman School, which is the, the home established to educate Jewish orphans alongside children from the community whose parents pay tuition. After degrees at Goucher College and George Washington University Law School, she earned an MBA from Loyola of Maryland, where she later taught law. She is a former special assistant to Maryland's Attorney General, where she started her 30-year legal career, and she is the author of Fair Labor Lawyer, The Remarkable Life of New Deal Attorney and Supreme Court Advocate, Bessie Margolin. Marlene Tressman lives in Baltimore and frequently visits New Orleans, where she helped curate the permanent exhibit about the home for the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience. She's going to talk to us about her new book, Most Fortunate Unfortunates, The Jewish Orphan's Home of New Orleans. Marlene, welcome to St. Louis in
0: Oh, no, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot, Arnold.
1: That book is a comprehensive history of that particular Jewish orphan's home of New Orleans. It's just an unbelievable uh, cross-section of everything. And is this book an outgrowth of your previous book about Bessie?
0: Yes, it it absolutely is. And both are outgrowth of my own childhood and my own childhood experiences. So, yes, it was when I was writing the uh, first biography of Bessie Margolin, who I believe needed to be rescued from undeserved obscurity. that I got really fascinated with her childhood, some 12 years that she spent growing up in New Orleans' Jewish orphan home, and that prompted me to want to tell another untold story, and that's the comprehensive history of that orphanage.
1: And how much time did you spend with her? Because same career, you had similar experiences growing up. And I know I read somewhere where you wish you would have recorded the conversations that you had with her.
0: Although, to tell you the truth, when I first met Bessie Margolin, I was 18 years old. I had just come to Baltimore from New Orleans to attend Goucher College. And Probably could never have gotten up the courage to ask the kinds of questions that were needed for the biography, much less do I think she would have answered a lot of the ones i I needed to ultimately tell. So I did end up spending in total about twelve years. we overlapped most and most frequently during my time in college, where she was gracious and would invite me to washington d c from Baltimore. And then when I was in Washington to attend George Washington Law School, I got to see her even more frequently and then petered out as I, I returned to Baltimore and start my career full time. But I did reach out to her one last time. Faithfully, I was, as part of my work in the Attorney General's office, I need to be admitted to the United States Supreme Court. So that I could be the attorney of record on the brief. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to have this incredible twenty-four-time Supreme Court advocate be the person in front of the Supreme Court asked for my admission. By that time it was nineteen ninety three, she was infirm, I believe, in a nursing home, and it, it wasn't going to happen. She ended up dying three years later. But it was a, a, an incredibly memorable day. It was Ruth Bader's birthday on the bench. Mm. And I'm only sorry that I wasn't able to connect those two credible women and scholars and lawyers. Person. That's a story. And yeah, I did get to spend enough time to feel that I had an insider's view, not to know all the answers about my questions in Dussie's life, but I could judge, I could judge and have a, a barometer of accuracy. I could gauge at least when I would research something whether it felt right, and then of course would do more to to make sure I could prove it.
1: Now, people may not know about Bessie Margolin. Can you give a brief biography of her?
0: Absolutely, joy to do that. Bessie Margolin grew up in the orphanage and was really took everything that she learned there. What she became, I believe, and as I explain in the book, was not in spite of the beginning, but it was really because of it. She emulated the grand dames of New Orleans Jewish society in her demeanor. She had never seen a female lawyer, a few lawyers at all, much less a female lawyer. But she took her Isidore Newman, high school education, which was a very rigorous academic education, got a scholarship to Newcomb College, which was then the cohort college, Tulane, ranked among the top 10 in her class there, but wasn't satisfied. And in 1927, transferred to Tulane Law School, ended up graduating top of her class. She was in 1930, difficult to get a job, but she managed to get a job as a research assistant at Yale Law School, and from there, and while there, studied under future Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. Hmm. Bessie started her career in the New Deal at the Tennessee Valley Authority, helping to shape the cases that defended the constitutionality of FDR's New Deal. And from there went to the Labor Department, where another New Deal cornerstone program awaited enforcement, and that was the Fair Labor Standards Act. She joined the Labor Department under Grant Perkins. Bessie was there as every aspect of that law was challenged, and over her three-decade career became overseer of all litigation and appeals that arose not only under the Fair Labor Standards Act, but a whole multitude of other labor laws. And as I mentioned before, she ended up arguing at the Supreme Court, in addition to more than a 100 times in the circuit court in the federal system, she argued at the Supreme Court, 24 times and was also responsible for the original litigation and appeals under the Equal Pay Act and the Discrimination in Employment Act. So she was a force to be reckoned with and really deserved to have that legacy preserved in a biography. I didn't think I was going to be the one to do it, but it turned out I was.
1: (laughs) And it peeled off into... Your new book, Most Fortunate Unfortunates, The Jewish Orphan's Home of New Orleans, the title, why were the residents fortunate and yet unfortunate? I know Lewis Peters, an alumnus, coined that phrase.
0: Sort of, yeah. It was a phrase that I guess I'd always felt about my own upbringing. As I think you mentioned before, I was orphaned at a very young age and had the benefit of being in an Incredibly philanthropic Jewish community in New Orleans. I, although the home, the orphanage had closed about 20 years before I came along and needed it, I surely would have lived there had it still been opened. And one of the legacies of the home in New Orleans was the Isidore Newman School that he created. And when the school was spun off independent after the home closure, There was a provision in the charter that any Jewish orphan who earlier would have been a ward of the home and would have gone to Newman because the home operated school, they would continue to honor that relationship. And so I, am maybe one of the only modern-day full orphans who was granted full scholarship to attend Newman, and, of course... Many, like a a great high school education, wherever obtained can pave the way. And it did for me to go to Goucher, then to law school, to have my career. So I always felt that sense in my own life. And it was a, it had occurred to me. The question I posed to myself was, did the children in the home, like Bessie Margolin, consider themselves as I did a most fortunate unfortunate? And when I was doing my digging, the Lewis Peter quote, which was actually the title of an article he wrote in a Houston Jewish newspaper, hmm. he used the title "Fortunate, Unfortunate." And I was a bit miffed at first that he had a <laughs> long time ago, but then I realized it was a it was a great sign that I was on the right track, right. and that is indeed how Lewis and not all, but many of the residents whom I call, the former residents who I call alumni, felt about their life in the home, even under the worst of family circumstances. They were grateful for the kind of education, medical care, social upbringing that they received in them.
1: Which, which kind of leads to a question that what was unusual about the Jewish orphans home of New Orleans as compared to other orphanages by other religious denominations or governmental institutions, what made it stand out, especially in the New Orleans area?
0: One of the things I think that it made it similar, and it's important to understand that New Orleans had a deeply rooted history of religiously operated orphanages. In fact, it claimed the very first orphanage in the nation back in 1726, founded by Ursuline Nguyen. And so by the 1850s, when yellow fever struck and there was a critical mass of Jews in New Orleans, and unfortunately a critical mass of orphans, it was a coming of age for the Jews of New Orleans to be able to establish from the ground up what became the first purpose-built Jewish orphanage in the country. Hey. And the local community in New Orleans welcomed the Jews of New Orleans for having passed this milestone and in fact even said in the paper that they were proud that the Jews had were now entitled to equal standing of the other religions in the city. It's important to understand that background because fit in and made that was another way that the Jews of New Orleans were able to gain acceptance in their adoption city. None of the founders of the home in 1850 were native to New Orleans. In fact, more than half were foreign born. And so it's a constant theme throughout the home's 90-year history and in my book that the founders and later the benefactors and managers of the home were always trying to make sure that they were accepted in the larger community of New Orleans. And very importantly, that the neediest co-religionists, the neediest Jewish children would always be seen as having taken care of fully by their benefactors. And I think because of that, the expenses were not spared. Even among the other total 50 Jewish orphanages that sprang up across the country, it totaled 50, the New Orleans home was smaller than most, and it was able to spend per capita and supply these children above and beyond the great number of other Jewish orphanages. It was also a way to fend off anti-Semitism that was always lurking in New Orleans, however genteel it would appear at some time, or as ugly as it could get. In fact, I was just writing something about World War I when it didn't take much Uh, world controversy seemed to have that impact, it doesn't take much to, for anti-Semitism lying often very slightly beneath the surface to erupt. And for example in in that first war, the home went to great effort to uh, publicly acknowledge all of its former wards who had gone off and were serving and gave their lives one. It was always an attempt to prove uh, the worth of the Jews of New Orleans and to claim equal place, patriot, good Jewish Americans.
1: Was the anti-Semitism also a motivator for some of the things that were done, like the summer camps, the manual training school, furthering the education? It seemed like the administrators had a very strong vision about where they wanted the clients to be. And it wasn't just, hey, we're going to house you and educate you and feed you, and then you're off to the world. They wanted to make sure that they were productive when they got out from not being in in the home.
0: Yeah, I do think that. I I don't think that the founders and later the benefactors all along the way would have specifically attributed to anti-Semitism, but I think it was more, their goal was to create self-sufficient, Productive American Jews who followed in the footsteps of the benefactors themselves and modeled the kind of culture and values of their prosperous benefactors. So all of those things. And that was very, that was not uncommon with other Jewish orphanages as well, often trying to make sure, especially during times of heightened immigration and the xenophobia that came with it. To make sure that their children were always seen as not just the subsistence provided, but they were in, impeccably well cared for and that they could fit in with the rest of society. The Isidore Newman School, which the home opened in 1904 is a perfect example. It wasn't enough for the home board to simply educate the board. They ended up coming up with what I believe is an, a unique one of a kind relationship in the United States between a religious institution of any kind and a co-ed non-secular college preparatory school. And uh, the, the unique facet of the school is that it was both outside of the home, but nearby, two blocks away. And it was open from the very first day for to educate the children of the home first. That they would always have a place in the school, but to be educated side by side with the children of New Orleans, regardless of religion, parents were wealthy enough to pay tuition. And I just want to point out it was 1904 New Orleans. It was the school was not open to anyone other than white children. So that's one caveat, the big caveat, but the notion that the children of the home would learn the aspiration, would emulate the kind of goal that the children of the wealthiest Jews and Gentiles of the city would emulate. And Desi Margolin was a perfect example of where that could lead. And I've got countless examples in my book, as well as on my website, where I profile, I'm only up to about 72 profiles, and I hope to make it through a lot more where you the trajectories of these kids and it's quite exemplary quite good there were bad sides there there were there's always a trade-off many of these children came from immigrant families from eastern europe other parts of the world and putting them on the very socially mobile track often caused chasms, the separations in terms socially, economically, with their own parents. Some children might have grown up to speak Yiddish. Some of them might have been educated in Orthodox synagogues. And that was a facet of many of the Jewish orphanages across the country as well, except for those, of course, that were founded as Orthodox Jewish orphanages. But in New Orleans, there really was not the critical mass of, of Jews to be able to fund and run two or, orphanages. So the one that the, the home in New Orleans was run according to reform Jewish values.
1: One of the things I found was interesting about the home was that they also helped widows and maybe that a husband passed away and a woman was left with a couple kids or vice versa and the father would take the children to the home. But there were even widows who lived at the home for a while. Is that correct, or did I misread that?
0: No, you you absolutely read that correctly. And, in fact, the association, legal name, was the Association for the Relief of Jewish Widows and Orphans. And the first building, which opened in 1856, was called the Home for Jewish Widows and Orphans. And there were, by my count, some 24 women, some of whom were actual widows, some were widows of small children, and a few were elderly uh, women who had never married but were simply clustered under the title of widows. These adult women no longer lived in the home after about 1880, 1885, when the home board realized it was rather difficult, if not completely incompatible to meet the needs of older or elderly women as well as children. And the home at that point began providing stipends for their care and ultimately for their care in a home for the aged that was run by the Turo Infirmary. But yes, that was the original goal. And even though the biblical mandate chair care for widows and orphans there were just as many children who were the product of deceased mothers and fathers found themselves unable to care for children and hold down a job. And the norms of the time were such that it was really looked down upon for a father to try to raise one, multiple children by himself. So, yes, there there were, in fact, as I said, 24 women who lived in the home about half of them in the very earliest years who came in with their children.
1: And weren't there some children that came from other parts of the country? It just wasn't all kids from New Orleans area.
0: That's absolutely right. As of 1875, B'nai B'rith, the International Order of B'nai B'rith, lodges across the country operating through regions, was looking to partner with orphanages to make sure it could offer to its lodge members across the country, the benefits, the insurance, so to speak, of knowing that should their lodge members need it, that there would be a place for their orphan children. And so it was district seven of Benebris that includes seven South states plus panhandle Florida. And when the home entered into an actual formal relationship with the neighbors in eighteen seventy-five, the home started getting eligible children from those seven and a half. So kids came from across from a a wide region. Uh some four hundred plus kids, the largest single number came from Louisiana. Texas, children from Texas totaled approximately Almost 400, 394. Um, and they also came from Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, Mississippi. No, I'm going to miss one. just <laughs> doing <I'm laughs> it off the top of my head. Alabama, plus the western panhandle of Florida.
1: As I read the book, the detail is just incredible. And you go into severe detail about the, the Jewish orphan's home of New Orleans. And even on your website, which I think is great, and I'm looking at that right now. That's MarleneTrustman.com. That's T R E S T M A N.com. You have it's like the the overflow or the things that you couldn't put in the book, and the pictures and the stories are great. And I, a couple things here, I guess. Thank goodness for the administrators who had this chronological admission and biographies to help you with that. But how long did it take you to research and how long did it take you to write the book? I know you're still, it's just overflowing to the website currently.
0: LSU Press, and I'm so fortunate to have such a great publisher, has let me know that putting the sociodemographic appendices, and I, I hope your readers know that if they're interested in doing more in-depth research, the um, online supplement on my website includes a complete Spreadsheet of every child ever admitted to the home, hmm. all 1523 by my count, plus the 24 widows. So there's lots there. LSU Press let me know. The book would have been unwieldy, if not prohibitively expensive. put in the appendices. And the photographs and the stories that I have in the photo gallery are really my tribute and my payback to all of the families and some alums who are still out there who were there at the home in the last few years. I interviewed a lot of late 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds, and even one gentleman in hundreds. Um, And so my photo gallery is my way of making sure that all of these precious photographs and images of memorabilia and stories don't get left on the cutting floor, so to speak. So I feel a debt of gratitude to the descendants and the alums themselves tell their stories, all many of which made it in the book, many. And I made sure that every person mentioned in a footnote or in the book is in the index. And women are listed both by their birth surnames as well as married names, because I didn't want descendants not to be able to easily find them. So it's my tribute to, to to these former residents and staff because there's lots of great stories about the staff in the home as well.
1: The number of personal interviews that you did—it's incredible—and were were people willing to open up their memory banks about their parents, uh, etc.?
0: Yeah, and I guess the the easiest part was once I launched the website—the wonders of the World Wide Web. People out there looking to find out more about their ancestors Mm. were were able to, if you type in, I think the word Jewish and orphan, I come up, my website comes up pretty soon. And so I would say 90% of the people I interviewed contact me through the website. There were, and of the people I reached out to because I had something that I wanted to make sure I knew more about, I, I, there was, I can't think of, I can think of any number who uh, were not interested. And that might have even been just within a family, someone who was less interested in talking to me than their brother's sister's own. Hmm. So it was really a wonderful. And I, I look at my book as really having two audiences. One is the scholarship of, the history of education, of dependent child care, philanthropy, and social work, scholar side, and then the other side is just people who want to know more about Jewish orphanages and, in particular, about their ancestors.
1: Personal reflection now. You answered the question I'm going to ask, but I'm going to ask you to delve into it a little more personally. Your, your takeaway from being a client of the Jewish Children's Regional Service to researching and writing this book?
0: I think it would be that I don't want anyone to think that, and anyone who reads the book will see, as one scholar said, I, it's a worth and all story. Mm-hmm. I don't pull punches. You will read about the worst that can happen to children, and of course the best, which fortunately was much more at the time. Um, but I've been asked whether... Do, do I see a role for orphanages? Having myself been raised in foster care, in an incredibly loving foster care, people who were close to my mother from our synagogue in New Orleans. So it was not a typical foster care setting of a child being placed in a, a family that totally unknown to the child. I do think that there has to be, in every community, a wide range of options. To deal with children where there's family dysfunction or tragedy. And certainly I'm not advocating the return of the hundred, hundred thousand person, thousand child orphanage as existed in other parts of the country. But I do think there's something to be gained from seeing the kind of rest care that should be available to families, whether it's in an individual foster home, or something more of a group setting, because parents often find themselves in predicament where a short-term respite and really well-managed care for their children, fully funded, run by staff that has the right intention and is trained. I think there's a place for that, and I hope that comes across in the book, that children need to be dealt with where they are. Two kids, I know from my own kids, they could go to the same school, they could have the same teacher and come away with very different experience. Two children growing up in the same family could have very different experiences. I think there has to be a range of options for children where families are. That's my takeaway and and my biggest takeaway, once again, I think I proved the answer to my own question of how fortunate I was as a so-called unfortunate. And I do believe that the vast majority of children raised in this home consider themselves the same way.
1: Well said. We've been talking to Marlene Tressman. She's the author of Most Fortunate Unfortunates, the Jewish Orphan's Home of New Orleans. And Marlene will be appearing at the Jewish Community Center November the 15th. And you can get more information about that. Go to jccstl.com, jccstl.com for tickets and additional information. And Marlene's website is Marlene Trustman, that's T-R-E-S-T-M-A-N.com, Marlene Trustman.com. Marlene, thanks very much for talking to us on St. Lucian and Tuna. Greatly appreciate your time today.
0: Oh, it's been great. Thank you, Arnold. That was really well done, and I could tell you've done a lot of homework, so thank you very much.
1: That's all for this show, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen to additional shows at stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. And please consider leaving a review on Apple or Podchaser or your preferred podcast platform, as your feedback helps us reach more listeners and continue to grow. Thanks to Bob Berthussell for our theme music and co-host Mark Langston. And we thank you for being a part of our community of curious minds. St. Louis Intune is a production of Motif Media Group and the U.S. Radio Network, Remember to keep seeking, keep learning, walk worthy, and let your light shine. For St. Louis In Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.